Welcome to Ninth in Congress. I'm Sherry Sylvester. Today I'm going to talk to the legendary Mark Hemingway, a senior writer at Real Clear Investigations and the books editor at The Federalist. Mark has been a Claremont Institute Lincoln Fellow and a Pulliam Distinguished Visiting Fellow in Journalism at Hillsdale College. He is the recipient of a Robert Novick Journalism Fellowship and was a two-time Global Prosperity Initiative Fellow at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University, where he studied microfinance in Southeast Asia. He has written for outlets as diverse as the Wall Street Journal and MTV and has appeared on C-SPAN's Washington Journal, CNN, MSNBC, Fox News, and National Public Radio. Mark writes about topics as diverse as rigging elections, Taylor Swift, and Obama's birth certificate. But like me, he always keeps his eye on the continuing corruption of the principles of journalism here in the U.S. I was on a panel with Mark last week at the Texas Public Policy Foundation's Victory Summit, and he told me he was going to, the, to Austin to attend the Texas Tribune Festival, a kind of burning man event for progressive policy wonks that conservatives don't go to anymore. I invited him on the podcast to find out how that's going and learn what he's really doing in Texas. Mark, thank you for coming. Well, thank you for having me. That was quite the introduction. Uh, you know, we have to over, uh, we have to underpromise and overachieve here. So, <laughs> absolutely. So, you've been uh, well. First, Robert Novak, fat, yeah. fat man in a middle seat. Yes, yes. Lo- love, really miss him. So, yeah, I, I knew him a tiny bit. Um, in fact, he was on the panel responsible for giving me the award that you mentioned earlier. Uh-huh. And, and I, you had this whole thing where I was like, I was applying for this prestigious grant it was a lot of money when I was a young journalist and um, I can't remember I, I don't even remember what I said all I know is within about a minute or two of me being in the room and I've been told he was the most intimidating man in the universe and he kind of was <laughs> I don't remember what I said but I've, I've said something that made him laugh and from that point on it was like uh, it was like one of the, my my grand achievements I made the Prince of Darkness that was his nickname laugh <laughs> <laughs> well so now fess up what when you told me you were coming to Austin to go to the Texas uh, Trib Fest Sponsored by the Texas Tribune. This is the ninth year to do it, tenth year, something yeah. like that, long time. Uh, I, I was stunned. None of us go to that anymore. So what were you thinking? So it's kind of interesting. Um, you know, the Tribune Fest, I don't think it always was what it's become, no. if that makes sense. It used to be a really cool thing. Yeah, and I was I actually went to it in 2019, and I went uh-huh. because my wife had just published a book on the Supreme Court, and she was invited to talk. Um, and we have a bunch of friends in Austin. Actually, my grandfather grew. Uh, my grandfather was living in Colleen when oh, I was wow. growing up, so I'm not unfamiliar with Central Texas. And obviously, I mean, you know, whatever you want to say about Austin, you know, it's still a fun town to visit at least. Um, so I was very excited to come here, and I had a very interesting experience with the Tribune Festival back then. And and I remember thinking at the time. It was kind of interesting because, it, well, it was very much this sort of liberal progressive event, but at the same time, there was enough like actual, you know, people on the right side of the aisle participating in this to actually make it kind of an interesting event. Mm-hmm. Um, I looked at the slate of speakers this year, and it's was just kind of astonishing to me. Um, you know, Ted Cruz is speaking tomorrow. You know, Ted's up for re-election next year, and it makes a little sense right. to appear here or whatever. But and there are a few people. You know, there's some. You know token conservatives you know Carl Rove is here uh, mm-hmm. speaking uh, um, and then there's a whole bunch of like never Trump Republican types but by and large I mean it was looking at the speaker's roster I was just kind of taken aback because you know Texas is known for having a functional political culture where Republicans talk to Democrats and stuff and this Tribune Festival was like 
you know, the greatest assemblage of liberal cranks clinging to respectability <laughs> since Nicole Hannah-Jones dined alone. <laughs> and Nicole Hannah-Jones is actually speaking tomorrow, you know, at the Tribune Festival. The uh, author of the 1619 Project for... Yeah. For those of you who don't um, But also like a noted crazy conspiracy theorist right. on Twitter. I mean, like, I mean, it's, they've been giving Pulitzer Prizes to this woman and she routinely says stuff that is just bananas. Um, and so part of my, you know, thinking is going down here to write about it was that, I mean, and I want to be clear here that it's kind of this grand tradition in journalism of, I know it probably started with Man with Mencken complaining about the Mount of Banks at a revival tent or some such nonsense. <laughs> but then, you know, you get Tom Wolfe's famous piece, you know, Mao Mowing the Flat Catchers, where he goes uh -huh. to David Bernstein, you know, hosting this fundraiser for Black Panthers and uh -huh. this weird spectacle of these, you know, square liberals in New York raising money for this violent totalitarian cult, essentially. And there's this rich tradition of like, you know, people show up in political circles and, you know, they try and discredit said political cause by making fun of how radical these people are. And there have probably been, you know, 20 pieces, you know, 20 major pieces in the last five years written by liberal journalists about how crazy CPAC is, for instance, the Conservative Political Action Conference. Right, yeah. So, like, I come down here to report on this, and I, I don't necessarily want to do that, but I do think that what's going on with the Texas Tribune and the Trib Fest is emblematic of a lot of more disturbing trends in journalism, which is to say, even a place like the Tribune, where I think that, you know, it started out well-intentioned, you know, I don't agree with him on much, but, like, I had some respect for Evan Smith and what he was trying to do, um, you know, uh, and, and I took him seriously. And then, you know, there was some drama at the publication, and I don't know to what extent Evan has, you know, really got his finger on the pulse over there anymore, but we're seeing what is basically the weaponization of journalism. Um, you're seeing a lot of left-wing money pouring into journalism at the local level and other things like that. And the reason why is they realize like this is a tool for their side because historically this is an institution that has tilted left. And, you know, Texas Tribune and the Trib Fest have certainly played like interesting roles, for instance, and, and you know, in fact, I've learned this from you and TPPF people, you know, the roles that they played in sort of foisting Beto O'Rourke on uh, the unsuspecting, you know, Texas citizens. Um, and other things like that. So I really want to kind of get to the heart of that and not just talk about, well, this is a crazy slate of speakers, and it is, but I also want to get to, like, you know, hopefully write something. How do we get here, you know? How do we take, like, even... Yeah, sure, I didn't agree with the Tribune much. They're a liberal publication. That's fine. A lot of publications are liberal, but, like, how do we get from them being merely liberal but willing to talk to conservatives to being this sort of very energetic, politically active, you know, super PAC that happens to have a publication attached, if that makes sense. Right. It's very interesting that they, uh, their business model, and I remember the first meeting when Ross Ramsey and, and Evan laid it out, their business model was, was so solid, they started with $4 million dollars uh liberal donors but they had brought in uh fairly solid uh journalists and they they uh they ultimately what they became in texas was a wire service and why they ended up being impactful in the political conversation was not because they put out a digital uh publication in austin but because those news stories might appear in the Lubbock Avalanche Journal or the uh, West Texas News because they, they provided all of that for free. Their model was they sold nothing. All you had to do was credit them. And then, and they made a lot of money off for advertising and events. But, but it's, it's always interesting to see like, when did they go off the cliff? And it, it may have been, I mean, I want your idea about journalism's decline origin story. Um, but it it may have been uh, just losing people who actually knew 
conservatives. Uh, they, you can tell in the conversations, if you listen to a podcast, they haven't talked to us. Mm-hmm. They, they haven't talked. I think that's why they invited me to dinner tonight. Yeah. That, I mean, you know, I worked for the lieutenant governor for eight years. I worked for Texans for Lawsuit Reform for 12 years before that. I was in, always been in the middle of the conservative conversation and used to talk to them a lot more now. But it's, I remember, you know, the, the thing that I always look at the decline, remember Pauline Kale saying she doesn't know how Nixon won. She didn't know anybody who voted for him. I think that's where they are now. Yeah, it's really interesting. The information system in America is incredibly asymmetric. Um, whereas what that means is if you and I, as people to the right of center, if I want to know what liberals are thinking, I turn on the television for about 20 seconds, right? right? yeah. Whereas liberals are not su- subscribing to the Claremont Review of Books. You know, they, they're, you know, it, it's, it's, it's much harder for them to, like, actively seek out conservative opinion. And this is, like, a, a deliberate result of what's happened in journalism. Right? It shouldn't be hard. But, like... Does the New York Times have a single columnist that voted for Trump? Now they have some people that you would that they, they, they call conservative columnists, and you know certainly Ross Douthat is a guy I respect a lot. I think is you know avowedly pro-life and done wonderful work on that and other conservative issues. But I'm not sure Ross voted for Trump. I'm not sure any and then certainly you know Brett Stevens didn't vote for Trump. You know certainly David Brooks didn't vote for Trump. Um, and as a result, they're in this situation where they're just incredibly like closed off to what conservatives are thinking. Like to just give you an example, I was at the Tribune Festival yesterday. And Barry Weiss was um, interviewing um, James Carville. And uh, Carville was saying, you know, he was just going off doing his, you know, Carville shtick. And he's like, well, we can't elect Trump. You know, if, if, if Trump gets elected, that's the end of the Constitution. He's going to destroy the civil service. And he says this like back to back. And it's like, I don't know if you paid attention to anything conservatives said in the last 30 or 40 years. What about the civil service as it presently exists, where we have something like two something million federal employees, where we have entire federal agencies that employ tens of thousands of people that go years without firing a single employee for cause, (laughs) that have de facto legislative authority? What about that situation is constitutional? You're not worried about Trump destroying the Constitution, really? Or are you worried about Trump destroying the civil service? Because those are two very unrelated things. And conservatives have been saying this out loud for a very long time. And they have very good reason, for instance, to be concerned about the constitutionality of the, of the, of the civil service and want to reform you know, whatever you know, that, 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 that is. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and that's part of the whole deep state argument. That's part of like, all these things. I mean, it's not conservatives are hiding that. And yet, it doesn't seem like Carl, James Carville who is, you know, maybe the greatest, you know, democratic political strategist of a generation, understands like the basic thinking on a fundamental issue for conservative voters. I mean, it, and it's kind of astonishing when you're just in a room and you hear that. And the, it's not like they they uh, they examine in that way. You know, when you think about Fox News, and uh, you know, and we are thinking about Fox News as Rupert Murdoch stepping down today and thinking what an achievement that was. But there's always somebody on Fox that's pushing back. I mean, one of the things that Tucker did, you know, he was always very critical of Republicans and different Republican candidates. Uh, Laura Ingram. Well, one of the things about Tucker was all he was he was always trying to get people on to criticize Governor Abbott. Because yeah. he didn't think that we were strong enough at the border. And so he's always looking for people to say that. Uh, and Laura Ingram, she's always critical of Republicans. Nobody on MSNBC goes after Democrats. They no, only go after That's us. exactly right. And it's not just they're wholly partisan. There's a whole other angle to the Fox 
um, you know, Fox catches a lot of flack, but the reality is, is that Fox is the only cable news network left with any sort of notable firewall between what would be news and editorial. Mm -hmm. Like you watch Brett Baer's special report program at 6 p.m. That's a news show back to front. Right. Like, you know, maybe in terms of the selection and maybe slightly cater to Fox's audience in terms of like what it what it pursues. But Brett is a very sober guy. You know, he's you know, he's he's not doing punditry. You turn on Hannity. It's very clear that it's punditry on MSNBC. You've got someone like Rachel Maddow that shows up to like anchor election coverage, you know, and Rachel Maddow was wall to wall. Russia collusion conspiracies for maybe two years on end where literally like every word that came out of her mouth about Trump and Vladimir Putin, including and and the was incorrect. Um, And somehow these people live in this just, you know, ginormous echo chamber where they just don't see that um, they're being damaged by this. And it, it has actually gotten to a point where and a lot, don't get me wrong, there's still a huge systemic advantage to having the press on your side right. and the press regurgitating your narratives. But it also gets to a point where routinely you end up in such an echo chamber that you don't actually understand what's going on. Um, so like the example I like to use is, is Glenn Youngkin, my governor where I live in Virginia. I'm, um, there was a debate between him and uh, um, his Democratic challenger, um, oh my gosh, why am I blanking? Uh, the former governor of Virginia who was the Clintons. Oh, Terry McAuliffe. Terry McAuliffe. And Terry McAuliffe had that comment in the debate about how parents shouldn't have anything to do with their children's education. Um, as soon as the debate was over, um, in the middle of the campaign, um, Youngkin blasted the entire state, mailers, ads, everything within, you know, as fast as they could get it on the air, um, attacking Terry McAuliffe for attacking parental authority. Um, and Terry McAuliffe didn't respond for like two or three weeks at all to this Mm -hmm. and i think it was sincerely because he was just believing his own press the washington post wasn't reporting on this so you know how big an impact could it possibly have yeah i mean it's amazing i say to reporters all the time uh, i don't know if this is true but i was told several years ago that 25 percent of the fox audience tv audience is in texas and every reporter that i talk to i'd say why when i walk into your newsroom is fox news not on Mm-hmm. Because all during the day, we're on. Jefferson can tell you, someone from TPPF is, is on at least once a day, maybe twice a day. The governor's on. The attorney general's on. The lieutenant governor's on. Right. Throughout the day. Why would you not be watching this? And yet they don't even know the names of the shows. They, right. don't, they don't understand. Right. And I, look, I'm, I'm not here to you know, necessarily like promote Fox. But I mean, I think, the, I mean, again, to go back to what I was saying about like how crazily asymmetric the news environment is, when Tucker Carlson was fired from Fox, uh, he wasn't just the highest-rated cable news host. He was the highest-rated cable news host among Democrats. Right. And the reason why is because the news has become so uniform. Like it's so predictable. You know what to expect. Everybody, like you know, is you know every everybody's singing from the same hymnal when you turn on all the other channels. And so even Democrats are desperate for like, well, there's got to be an alternative perspective on COVID because these school closures are crazy or whatever. Um, and so Fox's power is is in large part because they're doing such a terrible job. Yeah, and if they would, and this is the thing that just blows my mind. Um, and again, to go back to the trip fest, I was just on a panel. I just sat through a panel today about right wing extremism. <laughs> and look, I'm not going to fight these guys on you know a lot of stuff. Yeah, sure, QAnon is bananas or whatever. But so much of what they were griping about. Um, well, one, there's two issues. One is that 
so much of what was mainstream news for years, whether it was Hunter's laptop or COVID or Russia collusion or things, turned out to be conspiracy theories completely parroted by the mainstream media that anyone with half a brain could have figured out within a month or two. Um, so there's that whole hypocritical angle. But the other angle is, you guys don't understand, if you don't like these right-wing conspiracy theories that are getting purchased, if you would just give even a scintilla of attention to right-wing perspectives and, and do it in a sincere way, People might think that they could trust you and not be going to the, you know, parts of the, you know, information superhighway where it's a bad idea to roll down the window to get information. Right. Um, right. You know, you have the power as, you know, mainstream media organizations, or I hate the word mainstream, corporate media organizations, large media organizations to affect what news conservatives get. But as of now, they're just rejecting everything you're selling because you're not, you're, you're actively hostile in a way that like anyone can sense. I've, I've written about this. They, their instinct is not to ask questions. They wrote a story that was picked up nationally that said that Texas was going to, in textbooks, we were going to start saying uh, invo involuntary, that slavery, we were calling slavery involuntary transport instead of slavery. It was it, it was just a, a, essentially a typo that occurred, and they the story was you know fifteen hundred words. They never called the state board of education that was working on the textbooks. They never called and and or even looked at what was being looked at. And it, it's constant. Do they not know who to call? Do they not have numbers? Can they not figure out? I mean. There's a lot of Republicans here that would be happy to talk to you. The political reporter, I'll just say one more thing, the political reporter at uh, the Tribune who has been there forever cannot pronounce the name of the Texas Republican committee woman who has been there since 2010. <laughs> cannot pronounce her name. I mean, what's the, what's the excuse for that? Yeah, so to get back to this, to follow up on what you're saying, to get this back to this idea of everyone being kind of in their own information silos, again, at the Trip Fest yesterday, I'm watching Barry Weiss interview James Carville, oh, right, yeah. and he tells this story about how he found out that his daughter is pregnant with his um, grandchild, and so that meant that he had to go out and get a lawyer. Why? Because his daughter lives in a pro-life state, and because just by virtue of the fact that his daughter's pregnant, all these pro-life laws mean that, you know, if anything bad happens during pregnancy, he's going to have to have a lawyer at the ready on retainer if it, in case his daughter miscarries or something. That is absolutely bananas. And I know this because I've done a ton of reporting on this. Like, right after Dobbs, I mean, when we talk about weaponized journalism, we saw this just flurry of stories where, you know, oh my gosh, well, you know, if someone miscarries or they, you know, they have a, an ectopic pregnancy or something like that, you know, the doctors don't know what to, it was nonsense. Like if you go back and you look at the laws, um, and I, I did some reporting on this, I was the first guy to call up a bunch of Republican AGs and say, hey, you know, is, is someone who has an ectopic pregnancy, do you can, you know, that, that there's obviously a life-threatening condition, do you consider that an abortion that you're going to prosecute someone over? And they're like, of course not. This is absurd. If you read the law, it's explicitly written six ways from Sunday to exclude that possibility. And yet James Carville is over here because he reads the Washington Post, which probably ran the same story on this as the New York Times because they were, you know, using the same PR coordinator from Planned Parenthood, <laughs> um, thinks that he's got to go out and, you know, um, get a lawyer because his daughter's pregnant. I mean, this is crazy land. Do you think, and, and no, again, no understanding. It's, it's offensive to me that they don't care about us. Do you think David Brooks saying maybe it's our fault? 
maybe we don't understand them that are that column that he wrote saying that maybe they were to blame for Trump because they uh, have <laughs> they're created- absolutely to blame for Trump <laughs> I mean this isn't even a question right um you know like like I said so not just to pick on James Carville uh-huh. but in the past 24 hours I've seen J- I've yeah. seen James Carville I've seen Carl Rove and I've seen David Axelrod all speak at the trip fest Carl Rove and David Axelrod were doing their I hope they're paying you adequately whomever <laughs> <laughs> Axelrod and, and uh, Carl Rover doing what is now a well-established Hope and Crosby routine at this point in time. Uh-huh. Um, and it's really amazing. Like, on one hand, like, I re- like don't be wrong. Like, I'm not, like I said, I'm not here to just bag on these guys. Like, I, I respect a lot of what these guys have to do. And I, you know, like James Carville, yeah, I've said some unflattering things here. But he, I've also had a lot of respect for him because he's said some pretty tough things yeah. for Democrats in recent years. And similarly with both Axelrod and, and Rove, you know, they're up there they, they're all three of those guys have been up in front of a very liberal audience saying you know what joe biden is kind of you know out to lunch and you know this is a real problem for democrats and they've been saying this stuff openly and they've been talking about the age issues they've been talking about just the general political sphere and things that i'm deeply sympathetic to in terms of you know we, we just have a bunch of you know, we have, you know we have a 78 year old versus an 82 year old or whatever in this upcoming election right, yeah. and you know there are you know nobody's happy with you know the choices of our candidates you know there needs to be more civility. They're saying all these things I'm deeply sympathetic to. But it's like, how do we get to this point? Well, if you look at these three guys where Carville went out and like normalized the, you know, lying to public, lying to, to voters um, brazenly under Bill Clinton and getting away with it. I mean, in so many ways, that was the genesis right. of like Trump, right? Exactly. You know, when Bill Clinton was the very first politician to be caught doing something that was egregiously you know, immoral and lying about it and just brazen through and, and get away with it. I mean, well, that was, you know, well, that's what gave us move Trump on. in a lot of ways, Let's right? just move on. Exactly. Um, um, and then you go into, you know, George W. Bush, you know, again, nothing bad to say about George W. Bush personally, but, you know, the wars and all these other things. Um, and then you get into um, David Axelrod, you know, deepening those wars and, and so much of these things that, you know, have been eroding public confidence and trust. And then, you know, nationalizing one-sixth of the economy with Obamacare. And then have those three guys wonder, gosh, it's so weird. There's no faith left in politics. Voters <laughs> just don't under, you know, understand that, you know, people mean well. And these senators try and work together. And, it, gosh, it'd be so much better if we had choices that weren't populist or people that weren't coming from outside the system trying to tear it down. And it's just like, how, how? How do you not see why voters are in this place? Like, I lament that voters are in this place, too. But I'm not deluded about how we got here. Uh-huh. Now, granted, you know, Axelrod and, and Grove, and I want to be, I, I be very respectful. I sure. have a lot of respect. They're very smart guys. But, you know, just they're very inside of it. And I think that we need more people that are outside of it, but also care about civic values in a way that maybe populists don't. Yeah, it's and and because you don't understand yourself and your own motivations, then you really don't have any insight. Whatever you do to the other side, whatever they say about us, you you can say it. You know, I wanted to ask you about ProPublica, who is a, a yeah. partner of the Trib. Uh, and when I saw that happening, that was with very little fanfare. And I remember I I tweeted out. George Soros-backed ProPublica is now a partner with the Trib. And then I started saying the George Soros-backed Texas Tribune. And, and uh, Evan did not dispute that, but he would make fun of it. Yeah. He would make fun of it. Like, she's seeing George Soros everywhere, but he was there. 
Yeah. No, I mean, there's very clearly, and, you know, again, I don't want to sound, sound like some sort of conspiracy theorist or whatever, but I think reading the tea leaves, you know, there's, you know, very much definitely sort of a money rolls downhill, particularly in the Democratic Party, if you look at how they're organized and how they're funded in terms of George Soros and Arabella Advisors and all these other groups. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of very deliberate strategy on the left um, in terms of them taking billions of dollars and deciding where that goes. And s people at the top, and, 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 and I don't know what smoke-filled rooms this is happening in, have decided that you know this nonprofit model of journalism um, is something that they can use to their advantage. I mean, there's really no question about it. Like, in theory, yeah. I mean, there are a lot of problems with the business models surrounding journalism now. Um, you know, it was it's really sort of astonishing to me um, how this all happened in terms of everybody collectively lost their minds 25 years ago and decided to start giving away all their content for free on the internet and couldn't figure out why that backfired on them. <laughs> um, the Wall Street Journal is now the number one newspaper in the country, and it's the only one that has ever had a consistent paywall. Right. Um, and they eclipsed the New York Times because of that. Um, and it's expensive. Right. So the fact that um, journalism is so desperate for cash means that, you know, people can step because there's not subscriber revenue isn't coming in anymore. Um, and because they're subject to the algorithms and social media and stuff like that in terms of, you know, how they get eyeballs and clicks and, and online ads, they've, they started increasingly, you know, catering towards specific ideological audiences um, because of the, the, you know, so you would a smaller subset of ideologically passionate people, um, you know, start accounting for a larger amount of revenue. And now we're in a situation here where, you know, the big democratic money has realized, oh, we can fund this stuff. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I wasn't quite sure what to think of ProPublica at first, but like we've had, a f I don't remember how many years it's been in existence now, I mean, it's less than a decade, I would imagine. Yeah. Um, the evidence is in, and it's pretty brutal. I mean, the hit pieces against the conservative members of the Supreme Court are like clearly a coordinated thing. It's all being done through P ProPublica. It's incredibly thin gruel. Mm -hmm. And they're trying to make what Harlan Crow out to sound like this, you know, you know, crazy conservative puppeteer when the reality is, is he's like this, you know, never Trump soft Republican, mm -hmm. you know, and the fact that, you know, he had, you know, Clarence Thomas over to his house is somehow a scandal. I mean, it, it's absolutely crazy. Um, and then the other thing that ProPublica has been doing that was like really, really alarming was they've been publishing all these leaked tax returns. Right. I really wondered how can they do that? Um, well, I mean... <laughs> Whether or not it's legal, and again, the leaking of the tax returns, somebody has broken the law in a very bad way, and it's also really indicting that no one in the IRS, the federal government, seemed to give a damn about, you know, ferreting out these people um, or doing anything about it. Um, whether or not that's the case, publishing people's tax returns willy-nilly um, is just abhorrent and unethical. I, I don't care that these people are billionaires. I mean, like, and a lot of these people, yeah, they're really wealthy people that they're publishing the tax returns, they're, they're billionaires and stuff like that. But like, there's, you know, dozens and dozens of billionaires out there that you and I don't even know who these people are. I mean, like, I remember reading stories about these billionaires at ProPublica and, and what they're supposedly doing that's criminal on their tax returns. Like, I don't even know who this guy is. And it's just like, at what point do you decide that like this is newsworthy? I mean, they get to make these like big unilateral decisions and I don't think that they're making good decisions. And I think the reason why they're not making good decisions is because, whoever is paying them or whoever's coordinating this it just it what something's coming from the top
that is putting them on a very ideological agenda in a way that troubles me. And to, you're going to start seeing that roll downhill. It's going to start affecting things like, you know, what you mentioned what the Tribune is doing in terms of like being able to influence, you know, papers in West Texas or whatever. Um, you're going to see a big push to do that. And it's and they are pushing a lot of misinformation through that. So you look at uh, because they are saying that billionaires aren't paying taxes. They're the people that started the Warren Buffett pays less taxes than you do, mm-hmm. Mr. Common Man. And it's just it's not accurate. And they they you know their analysis is is skewed. And uh, well, regardless of whether it's accurate or not, there's an argument to be had about this, and it's not being done that way. It's not being presented that way. It's being presented as well, this guy's a billionaire, so ergo, he's evil. Uh-huh. And I'm not comfortable with that. I mean, you know, don't get me wrong. Like, I'm more suspicious of a billionaire than, you know, Joe Schmo in the street. But that doesn't mean that just because a billionaire is necessarily he's an evil guy, that, you know, he deserves to have his life uprooted, that somebody needs to go through his trash. Right. Um, you know, people still have rights in this country. And the thing is, is it's, I would feel better about that, though, if these same journalists you hadn't spent the last several decades you know going after ordinary people with the same fervor you know um you know it's one thing that the famous journalist cliche about you know afflicting the comfortable or whatever mm-hmm. you know cnn settling out of court because they're you know running news stories about you know some teenager that attended a pro-life march i mean they've they completely lost control of themselves in terms of um having any sort of judgment or restraint in terms of who to go after mm-hmm well, so so wrapping up here, Mark. So so, what do you see? I mean, you're a journalist. Clearly, you've with despite your your all over the map resume. <laughs> I worked. Is, at, you're still here. Uh, yeah, I've worked at three magazines, two daily newspapers, a Financial Wire. Um, I've been an investigative reporter for the past several years. Yeah, uh-huh. there's not much I haven't done or seen in the last twenty five years or so. Um, where do I see this heading? I mean, honestly. This is the thing. No one knows. Um, I do think that, honestly, it's going to get worse before it gets better because, like I said, the problem is is that these organizations really need to reform. Mm-hmm. But they're not talking to people uh, that you know have insight into what they're sort of doing wrong. Um, and you know, we saw a good example of this sort of last year where um, CNN – they hired this outside oh, guy, right, Chris yeah. Licht, remember? Right, yeah. The new president of CNN, and like he basically had a mandate to go in and moderate the place because it had gone completely off the rails under Jeff Zucker. And, you know, they you know just completely lost their mind to the Trump coverage. Um, there were, you know, so many sex scandals in the newsroom there that, you know, they could have staged a community theater pro- production of Caligula. <laughs> I mean, it was just like a complete zoo there. And he's and this guy who's given the mandate to reform survived about six months because the reality was is there was no way for him to go in there and reform the newsroom without like for instance the, the Atlantic profile that kind of did him in for him to like publicly talk about things like well we got COVID wrong yeah. like I mean he's saying this out loud and I don't know I mean it, it's basically the situation in the media is. There's just so much circling of the wagons that like any dissent, any chink in the chain, and they know that it's so fragile. They know that they're barely clinging to an audience. Um, you know, the, if you're on broadcast television, it's just a giant demographic cliff. Mm-hmm. You know, no one knows what cable news is going to look like in five years because no one under 60 is watching it. Right. Um, so nobody knows what's next and everybody's living in fear. So um, right now it just seems like they're trying to get while well, the getting's good and they're trying to 
Um, and because they don't know what's going to happen, they're much more willing to like let their freak flag fly in terms of partisanship and other things like that. Right. Yeah. If, I think if they thought that there was a sustainable future economically or otherwise, they would probably be more into thinking, oh, well, let's attract a larger audience by being fair. But part of the reason is they kind of know they're doomed and that's why they're being so, um, you know, politically um energetic as it were <laughs> yeah i mean it it's uh it's interesting the the press has not been involved i mean texas politics if you work in texas politics and you're on the republican side you, you don't work with the press the, the whole concept of earned media we don't work with that anymore uh and haven't since the rick perry days because they get it wrong and they editorialize against all the Republicans and they endorse Beto. Every newspaper in the state endorsed Beto. And and then this last time, uh, they endorsed Beto against Abbott. They endorsed Beto against Cruz. You know, and, and Abbott won by a million votes. They don't they have no idea how this happens. And uh, so it's what's interesting to me is where do people get their news? I mean, TPPF is all over the state. We do all kinds of meetings like the ones you saw last week. People are pretty well informed, and I don't have no idea. What, what are they? Are, are they? We put out a lot of information. Right. But we're not a media outlet. So right. Remember where people get their stuff. Now, that's a really good question. I, um, I saw someone had done a focus group up in New Hampshire a week or two ago, and it was fascinating because, and I think it was among Republican voters, and uh, the not one of them said Fox News was their main source of news. Interesting. I mean, it's all incredibly fragmented. I mean, like, there are problems to the fragmentation of it, obviously. On the other hand, there are opportunities for a place like TPPF. Um, you know, I say this as a reporter. Um, there are a handful of, of, of great state think tanks. Uh, TPPF is, you know, at the top of the list, but the Goldwater Institute in Arizona, mm -hmm. Mackinac in, in, in Michigan. Um, um, I'm totally blanking on the name of the one in Wisconsin. But there's a bunch of these really good state think tanks that actually, in some cases, some of these state think tanks have been affiliated with like lo local news mm -hmm. um, outlets and other things like that. Um, what, it's an opportunity for an organization like this to like get out the news. Um, you know, and I don't honestly know. I mean, honestly, I think probably TPPF is probably you know, going to be as fair as any other news outlet, even though you have an explicitly ideological mission on your website. But, but you know, on some level, that's at least transparent, whereas it's really amazing to me that so many journalistic institutions are still clinging to these this notion of objectivity um, that, uh, you know, I, I think in a lot of ways is outdated. Um, um and was never really entirely accurate. But the other thing that I think is happening, and I think this is really sort of a fascinating angle, is um, a woman named Bacha Unger Sargon wrote a book called Bad News in mm -hmm. the last year or two, and it's a fascinating book. And she makes the point that media bias is as much or more a function of class as it is ideology. And like, this is the thing that I think with Democrats really, if they care about this, need to watch out for. Um, you know, Rush Limbaugh and conservative news, like, you know, Fox is a very tabloidy sense mm -hmm. to it. And Rush Limbaugh got really popular because he was on talk radio. Who listens to talk radio? Right. It's people that are driving around all day in blue collar jobs, people that work on shop floors, you know, people that live and work in offices are not listening to talk radio. And so conservatives over a long period of time attracted a much more broad based sort of blue collar audience. Um, you know, whereas you will see, you know, 
<laughs> I think Bacha Ungar Sargon in her book points out there was a, a New York Times magazine that came out once that had Angela Davis on the front cover and an ad for Cartier on the back. You know, I mean, it's just, just such a contradiction anymore <laughs> um, that I really think that it's become not just out of touch, but it's become so catered to an advertiser-friendly, elite, liberal, aging audience. And let me tell you, that perfectly describes who's here for the Trib Fest. I mean, I think the average age is about 65. Oh, really? Oh, it's it's crazy how old the audience is. So it's old white and commentators liberals. have commented on that, yeah. Old uh, white liberals. Old white liberals, by and large, yeah. Um, and that is obviously not sustainable. Right. So, Despite the fact it's on the campus, it's on the UT campus, right? Um, no, it's, not all of it? it's in the Omni Hotel, and there's an Episcopal Church there, and Paramount Theater, a few oh, other okay. venues right around downtown. Yeah, I haven't been, and so it used to be on the UT campus. Oh, I believe that. And yeah. I used to bug them about, you know, go put it on the AM campus, put it somewhere else. And yeah. They would never do that. Uh, well, let me ask you one last question. Uh, you know, one of the things we say about Ninth in Congress is, uh, you know, the Tribune and most of the media is at Tenth in Congress. <laughs> so that's that's part of the perspective here. But did you find a story? You get, what are you going to write coming out of this? Well, like I said, I want to do more of a big picture piece. I mean, to some extent, like, I mean, I've really been sort of, there's no shortage of color. Like, I'll just tell you, I got in a really crowded elevator in the hotel um, to go up to the ballroom to see David, Carl Rove and David Axelrod today. And it's just jam-packed elevator. And this classic Austin persona guy wearing a, this aging hippie-looking dude with an uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez T-shirt <laughs> to a room full of a crowded elevator, I'm sure of which he knows he knows no one, but all TribFest attendees says, wow, Carl Rove, I'm, I can't believe they even let him in the building. And everyone laughs. And this blue-haired, like, 65-year-old woman says, and they didn't check us for knives. And everyone else laughs. Now... I can take a joke. I don't think anybody was being, you know, serious about any threats of violence. I do know how if a reporter overheard someone say this at CPAC would react. So all I'm trying to say is I'm trying to be better than that. Uh -huh. I think there is a larger story here about, like I said, about this issue of weaponized journalism and nonprofit journalism and what events like the TribFest say about, you know, where we're headed in that direction. And so... Um, you know, hopefully you'll get back to me in two, three, four weeks or however long it is. And, I'm, you know, I'll have some sort of larger story about that. But, yeah, um, if I wanted to write the, you know, H.L. Mencken at a revival tent, uh, Mau Mauing the Flat Catchers piece, there's plenty of material, let me tell you that. Can we still say Mau Mauing the Flat Catchers? I've been thinking of that phrase quite a lot lately. <laughs> you know, uh, Evan and... Uh, and uh, Ross said when they started the Tribune that they wanted to create community. Mm -hmm. and, and that was their goal as much as journalism. And so it's interesting that's the community they've created. Uh, but uh, I really appreciate getting to talk to you. Mark? Oh, thanks for having me. I, you know, anytime I get to Austin, I mean, yeah, I know Austin has a reputation as a liberal city, but, you know, it's a wonderful place, and I'm a music fan, so I'm glad to be here. Good music, good barbecue. Thanks so much to all of you for joining us today. You can subscribe to the Ninth in Congress podcast at Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like to receive the Ninth in Congress newsletter, you can sign up at the TPPF website, www.texaspolicy.com slash Ninth in Congress. <laughs>